0: You about discernment yesterday. About, so is there any kind of uh, steps that we can do on a daily basis that we... Choices. Help how to choices. Yeah, you know, how to make it more spontaneous in the real sense.
1: So this is the...
2: Uh, actually the first, very first thing on the path and Shubindo, takes it from the Gita, I mean, takes it further from the Gita. Gita starts with this discernment which is uh, called as Buddhi Yoga. So this is a faculty of nature. And yet nature has evolved this faculty out of itself so that we can transcend nature. So that's the whole trick. It has given a secret key to man to go beyond itself. But the reason why Buddhi is unable to truly arrive at a correct judgment, correct discernment, is because it is all the time outward and uh, lower casing. So it is involved with all the phenomena and quickly leaps at appearances, is drawn down by the vital desires to justify itself. This is the first... Uh, As buddhi first emerges, uh, all the powers in man which have ruled so far, they want to use it to continue their reign upon earth. So it's a natural tendency at a practical level in um, all of us to start with, that whatever our feelings, whatever our desires, we just justify it. Whatever our actions, we justify it. So when we do that, buddhi is never able to get free and it always remains in the clutch. And there can be many justifications from the gross justifications that this is uh, not because of my fault, it's somebody else's fault. Or um, that's what I am. Or um, even we can justify through subtle spiritual means, You know, which is the worst kind of justification. So as long as we are doing it, there is no possibility of any right discernment. So that is why the first step is to disengage the Buddhi from the movements of nature. Mother calls it a stepping back. It's a long process, but the tendency to leap into action, the tendency to rush into speech, the tendency to um, react to every sensory impact. We have to learn to step back. It comes as we begin to observe that, oh, this response of mind was... Uh, there was a sensory impact on the nerves. You see, it is that's how the nervous system works. It's very interesting that there is a sensory impact and something in the mind registers it and reacts to it. This is the normal reflex action. Let's see if there is heat. So the mind, uh, it goes to the brain, the impulse goes to the brain, not to the mind but to the brain. The brain will trigger a whole response so that you begin to sweat or whatever means by which you can control it. Now when buddhi also comes, um, dragged into it, then the buddhi's reaction also will be, oh my god, it's so hot. Then speech will also come out, oh, it's so hot. And then there's a whole response of anxiety, worry, it's so hot, how am I going to handle this, etc., etc. So this is how normally we leap at every sensory impact. But we can at that point of time, make a little effort of turning the buddhi inward and upward. So this can be done in two ways. One is um, the way of tapasya or the tapasvins. They simply do it by the force of their will, kind of effort. So they refuse to react to it. They bear it. Shabunda gives number of practices. And um, uh, is it going there, DJ? We are not disturbed. So it it um, uh, one of the three, four practices which Sri gives with regard to it. One is indifference. The second is a stoic forbearance, endurance. The third is a philosophical detachment. All these three processes can be used to train the Buddhi not to react to appearances. This is the first step. The first great step of yoga, which is called as practice of equanimity. And equanimity has to be practiced at all these three levels, At the physical level to the physical impacts, discomforts, comforts, uh, little things, little issues. At the vital level uh, to pride, to loss of pride, to honor and insult. When mother was asked that, um, mother so and so is insulting me very much, what shall I do? And mother uh, gave a very interesting response that uh, um, no child of mine can ever feel insulted. And then she says, uh, it is only the ego that feels insulted. The soul never feels insulted. So now so many in everyday life, we will have occasions to practice this. Similarly, at the intellectual level, equ- equanimity has to be practiced. There would be difference, uh, different views, different ideas, different opinions. And while we have to follow our own dharma uh, of moving along a certain line of evolution, we have to see that uh, we don't turn this dharma into a, a universal cult which everybody should practice so this is a way uh, how otherwise religions cults, ideologies come into existence so everyday life there will be countless countless situations to help us grow into this yoga and the more we practice equanimity the more we will the buddhi will get liberated shrivindo says for other yogas you don't need to practice it very interesting if you are following Gyan Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, you can do away with equanimity for a while. But for Karma Yoga, you need to practice it. Because in Karma Yoga, you have to enter into the field of action. And if you don't have the equanimity, you can't make a choice. Bhakta doesn't mind. He is driven by you know his own emotions and he doesn't care. A Jnana Yogi discards entire appearances as uh, null and void because they are all constructs. So I want the only one reality. So he has a very simpler way. There is no choices to be made. Because all the choices are choices of ignorance. Whether I choose this or that, I am choosing based on phenomenal appearance. My goal is the oneself. So you don't need real equanimity except as much as needed for you to at least sit and meditate and quieten oneself. Similarly for the Bhakta. Bhakta doesn't care what happens to life, what happens to others. It, traditional Bhakta, not windows Yoga. He simply is bothered about his love for the Lord. But then if you have to act, you have to make choices. So first thing is for, for practice of equanimity. Shirobindo says it is the one knot that must be undone, inequality. And if that is done, then action can develop. So this itself is a long practice because so many times there will be intrusion of desire, intrusion of my own views, opinions, and I am always right. And um, that's where we have, you know, we are just talking about it some time back, how... Uh, in real life, we encounter uh, people and situations which are not at all to a liking. And our responses at that point of time will determine whether we have made a tilt towards equality or whether we have made a tilt towards inequality. Once a basic fundamental equality settles into the, into the system, then, yes, we have to look carefully inside. Usually the feeling comes in the heart of a certain course of action that one must pursue. And that's again by sustained practice. Initially, though one gets the feeling, something else in the person may try to cover it, block it, still make us deviate, because the hold of the ego is very strong on nature. Again and again we have to be reminded, because every time we deviate from it, it will be as much difficult to get back because that little voice will begin to withdraw. So this is the second part of the practice where we begin to feel it. And this will not be based upon any external uh, benefits, advantages. uh, What beautiful example that Narada was giving yesterday, that Mother sent him all the way to uh, L.A. to be with Jyotipriya Priya, uh, whereas... um, he was uh, earning a good deal of money at that point of time. So normally when buddhi decides, when it is involved with appearances and with lower nature, it would say, yeah, I must make this my logical choice. And one will justify also, look at it, it is mother's grace that, you know, I am getting so much money. But, well, really the divine will was something else. Divine will was forcing 50 years down the line when Narada would be sitting here and you know reading Savitri, a far greater destiny than he would have by making millions. So this buddhi, when it disengages from the surface and doesn't let itself rush, then slowly this discernment comes from inside. Now, this is a long process. Till then what does one do? Because, okay, it's fine, but what do I do today, tomorrow? There has to be a way. All the time I cannot say, okay, I'll wait for Uh, equanimity to develop so there the course is that choose according to the highest without preferences as far as possible for this or that result that's why this giving up of the result normally we make choices based on this calculation that if I do this this is going to come this consideration already deviates the buddhi clouds it so to choose without preference and according to whatever highest is available at one's own point of time. The highest may be reason, fair enough, choose rationally. The highest may be a deep welling up of an emotion which is very strong and insistent in nature at that point of time. But the saving grace that we must do when we do this way is that dedicate that action to the Divine. Offer it to Mother. And that's what we read yesterday, that the safest thing is to surrender. So as we make a choice, we make a surrender and surrender with an aspiration that may this choice of mind turn out for the good of all to create beauty, to create love, to create harmony, to create peace and light in the world. Then what will happen is that even when it is an ignorant action, as it would be in the beginning, the touch of the divine, because it becomes a yoga then, everything that you dedicate to the divine, you have brought him in play, into the human play. Becoming like a bridge between this surface consciousness and the divine consciousness. So the divine will begin to use that action to give you the experiences which are necessary for growth. These may be painful experiences, bitter experiences. So later one cannot say that, look, you know, why did you do this to me? One dedicated the action to God. Take the scenario of from Mahabharata. So in Mahabharata, these people are going to play the game of dice. This is dangerous and Yudhishthira should not have done it. But one good thing he does is he keeps Krishna informed about it. Now Krishna of course knew what's going to come out of this whole stuff. But he says, alright, go through it. So they go through it. And what humiliation and what pain that they experience for the next 13 years of their life. And this Shorbindo explains very beautifully in Essays on the Gita, saying how the Divine works. Essays on the Gita. And he says that, um, we will read the exact, but um, he will, those who have to become his instrument, he will let them go through whatever experience is necessary to make them become his instrument.
1: 12. We will
2: go to 12 first. And then. Page. and we'll come to that. It's uh, used to that uh, book thing. Mm. Uh, Divine teacher will come several days. Basically he says that um, at crucial moments he will intervene because you have invoked him to make sure that the action does not become too dramatic or too dangerous. But he will let you go through the consequences which are necessary for your growth and progress. So that's where we see in the Mahabharata that he lets them go to realize and understand and prepare them because they have to be prepared for gaining the kingdom. Now, take the other way that if uh, they had not offered this action and just gone, not kept uh, Krishna informed as it were. So it's quite likely that when all this was going on, one of them would have just stood up and started fighting and perhaps maybe, you know, ended up destroying a few from both sides. But it is Krishna who though he is not present visibly there, has restrained the whole lot because there is a greater plan in mind and Arjun has to become eventually a great instrument of the divine work upon earth. So for that he has to go through all the difficulties and all the pain and struggle because he has made a choice which has deflected the whole thing from a straight path. But having said that, the very fact that when we offer our offer actions and choice to the divine, he will lead it towards a point where we begin to perceive more and more the Divine will inside because He will clear the all the garbage, all the waste, all the noises that stand in the way. So this is the basic method to practice discernment. In the beginning it won't be possible. So at least whatever action is done to dedicate it, not to be carried away by too much calculating about the results. If I do this, this is going to happen. The mind in the beginning will try to give all these kind of justifications, explanations, calculations. So you have to keep it quiet, quiet, quiet. As long as they are active, the decision will always be warped. Even when it is the divine action, sometimes it's again interesting that the divine action uh, is for one purpose, though the human mind gives a totally different purpose. It may give a purpose that, oh, I'll benefit from this. But actually, the divine wants you to do this action. Though I may give a very uh, different reason altogether for it. So uh, this cannot be a criteria that just because I am benefiting from it, it is not a divine action. Divine may want us to act exactly along those lines. But the problem is that when we are acting with calculation in mind, it warps our own consciousness and we do not grow through the divine contact. That is the basic uh, problem. So like when Shyobind was asked, uh, how about instruments like Winston Churchill? They also became instruments of God's design. So he says that is the difference between an unconscious instrument and a conscious instrument. Unconscious instruments are also driven by the Divine, though they think it's they because of them. But after a period of time when the work is over, they are cast aside because they are not ready to. They are not like Napoleon. As long as he became remained, a, you know, instrument fine. But the day ego got the better of him, and he thought, "I am France." There was a certain truth in it. Shubhendu says, <laughs> because the spirit of France had embodied him in him. But the moment he took it in an egoistic way, he says, "Kali slayed him," and he was cast aside. Whereas when this is a conscious instrument, he's doing the same thing exactly, but not out of any personal things. As a offering to God then the Divine will rescue from all these onslaughts and help you grow personally through the action which will develop over a course of time. So the simplest way is what Mother has given, remember and offer. Everything that you do, remember and offer. Don't worry whether it's exactly, even Mother was asked this question, um, how do I know whether this action is according to Divine will or not? This is another problem which comes. I'm going to make this choice, I'm going to join this company, I'm going to leave this one, I plan to shift to India, I plan to, you know, go to UK. Is this the action according to mother's will or not? So mother says, It does not matter. What matters is the attitude with which you are doing. That is also there in uh, volume nine, she describes mm-hmm. at length. That it is the attitude with which you are doing. So we give too much importance to our actions. Oh, as if, you know, it's going to really determine something, change the course of my destiny and others' destiny. But the attitude is far, far, far more important.
0: uh, That's been my experience. there been many opportunities that come my way. I pursue everything that comes but with the belief that if this is not what Mother wants, it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. There's been many instances where I thought that was I was excited about it, but it fizzled out. Mm. didn't didn't affect me. I didn't feel sorry. I didn't feel disappointed because that's not what the was mm. meant to be. That's not what the mother wanted. And, and this is something else. And sometimes it goes forward. And see, it as her, we Will I like move forward with it? Sometimes it drops and just move on. You know. So it to you, right. so uh, what attitude you're pursuing. Something that determines you. But well, you feel disappointed, affected, affected, affected most of it doesn't affect emotionally.
1: True. I had from mother a letter. See, after I met her, my world, my whole life was turned upside down. I didn't know what to do. I was 23 years old. I had been studying music. I, I, I didn't know where to go, what to do. So I wrote to Mother, and I said, Mother, should I continue my musical studies, or should I study choral music and conduct choirs? And I don't know what to do. And Mother says, one or the other, this is exactly her words, one or the other, because the important thing is not so much what you choose, but the spirit in which you will do it. And then she has the next sentence, incredible sentence. Keep living in you the spirit of consecration, and all will be all right. At 23, I didn't know anything about the spirit of consecration.
2: (laughs) The next point you
1: said is choosing the highest. So, precisely what does that mean?
2: Choosing according to whatever highest is available within oneself, whatever highest faculty. Like, Buddhi may not be the highest at a given point of time. So, at least reason. Reason is not exactly Buddhi, because buddhi, buddhi is a discriminating intellect. But reason gives, you know, okay ways, possibilities. Fair enough, because that's the one which is ready more readily available to us. At a given point of time it may not even be reason because reason is also clouded. At You, know, you want to um, look at the options, possibilities but you cannot. So you end up making a choice because at that point of time emotion is at the forefront. Like there are people who change jobs because it's convenient to their parents. It's an emotional choice. But you can't help it. At that point of time that is the highest available for you. But the very fact that you dedicate it to the Divine. That, you know, turns it into honey. So this is where there is something very beautiful. The way Mother puts it, oh, it's amazing. So I'll just read this, uh, Volume 9. The question is, oh, Mother has said this. So the disciple is uh, asking question based on something she has said. The difficulties and obstacles met on the path when one wants to attain a certain aim. Are these sometimes a sign that this decision, this plan or project was faulty from the beginning? And that hence one should not persist. Or on the contrary, do these difficulties indicate a victory to be won, a transformation to be attained? So you know, Divine doesn't work according to our notions. As I said, uh, they yet have to go through, yudhishthir and the company. You know, they don't succeed. So does it mean that the divine will was not with them? How difficult, how different divine guidance can be? Are they a sign that one must persevere and hold fast? I am not speaking here of the decision to follow the path of yoga, but of the little things connected with work, sports or other activities. In other words, how to recognize and interpret the guidance which comes through circumstances or relations with others and through experience. So the mother says, if one wants to follow a discipline of yoga, naturally, before understanding anything, one must try to discern and know if the inspiration received is a real one coming from the divine. See, this is the basic question. Or whether it is simply a reaction to outer circumstances and an impulse, either vital or mental. So the first thing is this cloud noise, which is constantly interfering with the right reception. One has to learn to discern that, that how much of it is coming as a reaction. It is quite important, even very important, to try to discern and act in full knowledge of the cause. But there are very many things one does and about which one is not in the habit of thinking beforehand. When the circumstance comes, one obeys it, so to say. And indeed... These things, like almost everything one does in life, are not important in themselves. We give them importance. Oh, should I do this? Should I meet this person? Should I go there? Should I, you know, like simple thing. Supposing somebody says, uh, let's go, let's go and, you know, go to the market and let's see this place. Now, you know, a scrupulous person will say, no, should I, should I not? Am I supposed to go, not supposed to go? So these questions will come. The only thing that matters is the attitude with which they are done. So what is your attitude in making that choice? So if you are doing it with the idea, oh, it will be a you know, getaway and it's, it's fine, I'm getting bored, then it's not a good attitude. <laughs> so attitude is important. Whereas not the action itself, the fact that you do something, in fact, it can go to any extent, you know. There are people who do things simply so that the other person is not hurt. The other person or sometimes to please another person. That is not a good attitude. Though it may, you know, look very nice that you are doing something so that you want to please the other person. But it's not a good attitude. Because behind this attitude, there is an egoistic movement. Sometimes we do things only to look good in other eyes. That's also not a good attitude. So there is a whole set of attitudes with which we undertake action. And such actions may appear very commendable to others, but they are not the right attitude.
0: I think the more significant the action, more important the attitude.
2: Yes, yes, absolutely.
0: The, you know, whether you have a cup of coffee or you walk in the park, is, is a relatively small action. Yeah, today. relatively small. It matters less, but if it's a significant action that you're talking about, then the attitude becomes more mm-hmm. important.
2: So the fact that you do something because that action is present there before you, for one reason or another, and that you are, so to say, always obliged to act, as long as you are in the outer life, all this has a certain importance from the point of view of the management of life. If these acts are liable to have far-reaching consequences in life, as for example, getting married, or going to live in one place or another, or taking up one occupation or another, this is exactly what you were saying just now. These things are generally considered important. Shes saying because you know they'll have consequence. you get married to a you know a person who is going to make your life miserable and you know uh, stop you from uh, moving on the path. though even there ultimately still you have a course correction, the attitude. <laughs> Again, the attitude will help things. These things are generally considered important and they are so to a certain extent. But even for them, from the point of view of yoga, everything depends much more on the attitude one takes than on the thing itself. And so, above all, for all the very small actions of daily life, the importance is reduced to a minimum. So most of these things we don't have to start worrying. uh, Oh, should I do this? Should I not do this? What is more important is the spirit of consecration. So next then she comes something very interesting. It's a very, you know, revealing uh, uh, truth that the mother is showing her. There are some scrupulous people who set problems to themselves and find it very difficult to solve them because they state the problem wrongly. Like, you know, this, should I do this? Should I meet this person? Now these are, you know, we have stated the problem wrongly. I knew a young woman who was a theosophist and was trying to practice. She told me we are taught that the divine will must prevail in all that we do. But in the morning when I have my breakfast, how can I know whether God wants me to put two lumps of sugar in my coffee or only one. Though later on about this experience, Mother says in the agenda that perhaps the divine does decide how many lumps of sugar you want to put. But that is when the whole very physical, you know, you can even hear the very physical. That well, the body tells. The divine works in every part. We read yesterday about the soul flowing into the blood. And flowing into the nerves it decides. Not only the speaks about it. And the mother says later on. But let's start with at our level that, you know, to become scrupulous about should I put two lumps or one lump. And it was quite touching, you know, and I had come, I had some trouble explaining to her that the spirit in which she drank her coffee, the attitude she had towards her food. See, yesterday, I think we were talking about it, that if we do things with fear, even exercises with fear, Mm -hmm. diet control with fear, we end up, because the attitude is not right, it ends up having an adverse effect upon. Whereas when we do the same things with a state of joy or simply to give the body some uh, degree of exercise which it needs or to stay healthy, the attitude she had towards her food was much more important than the number of lumps of sugar she put into it. It is the same with all the little things one does at every moment. The divine consciousness does not work in the human way. It does not decide how many lumps of sugar you will put in your coffee? It gradually puts you in the right attitude towards actions, things, an attitude of consecration. So first things he says, it puts you in an attitude of consecration. That this is not for me, but for the mother we are doing it. It's you know an offering to the divine. And then very beautiful words uses, suppleness. So when we do something thinking mentally, oh this is what the divine wants me to do. We are not supple enough and we take a stand based on the ego which is destructive. At one place when in ashram everybody was fighting with each other and quoting the mother, cling to truth. This is by the way happened (laughs) in the 60s. Can you imagine? 60s. And mother speaks about it. She says, what can I do? Neither of them understands truth, but they quote me, I am the culprit because I only told them cling to truth. (laughs) And she has a good laugh. Because you see, when you go to Shriptu's room, it is written cling to truth. Now, you know, truth is something not decided by the human intellect. (laughs) It is something which is very vast. So she says, if you are not supple, you uh, mistake a rigid egoistic movement and grasp it, now even that at one point it may be fine but at another point it is not so that's where she uses the word suppleness, at another place in synthesis also Shuraminda says, the psychic guidance is a very supple guidance what it will indicate at this point of time may not be the same thing it will indicate you at another point of time that's why this word suppleness is so important. It's not a rigid all for all for everybody for all times. Thus thou shalt do and thus thou shalt not. It's not a commandment. And that is the <laughs> yeah.
0: the danger that I always yeah. advocate against is people quoting the mother. Yes. She said something to X then it X. Mean becomes a gospel for yes. everybody else. You know. Yes. The same person, she may say the exact opposite 24. Hours exactly. So it's very critical. Even people
2: asked her mother, you said this yesterday and why have you changed your opinion? People asked. Mother said, I don't change opinions. I have no opinions. But based on the way the world forces develop, I give the guidance accordingly. And there are so many instances which people have not understood. One of them was, uh, for instance, in Corner House when chicken is given. So people, you know, initially she had said no. Then Pranabda you know wrote a letter saying that this this mother said alright if you want and then she gave a little you know not that like every day have chicken and enjoy like a glutton, but she gave certain instructions that you can give it. Now, you know, people used to wonder that why why has mother changed her view? And they misunderstood it that it's because Dada has said she has changed. It is not like that. She would see the entire play of forces, the entire possibilities that are coming up. And based on that, she will decide. So for us also, guidance has to be a very supple guidance. not like thou shalt do this. If not, thou shalt (laughs) fall into perdition, uh, be damned into eternal hell, roast under the fires. It's not like that (laughs) because… Talking about
0: diet, there was a a vegetarian conference, something like that. Ah, that is a
2: wonderful one. And
0: so… They wanted Mother to give a, <laughs> a, a, That's a lovely one. A combination, you know, Message. Uh, you know, mother started by saying, set aside all mental rigidities into that effect. So they are quite upset that she was, <laughs> they were expecting her to say, the beauty of vegetarianism is the closest <laughs> way to God or something like that, you know. But she got the exact opposite answer. So this talk about supplements. In fact,
2: people. for quite some time now, there also see reviews, it's a very beautiful talk in the agenda. At first, she did not give any message because she knew these people are holding a vegetarian conference out of pure rigid, you know, mindset that vegetarianism is best and whoever is non vegetarian is as if bad, condemned. So she could see all that. So she didn't say anything. But they insisted. Mother, give us a message. And then, in fact, she goes further. She said, "I had, <laughs> I felt like telling them start eating meat."
1: <laughs> he said,
2: "But that would be very scandalous." <laughs> she said all this. He said, "That would be very scandalous because they won't understand the power of Mahakali that can not all these mental conceptions." <laughs> then she gives this in this way, and uh, there was a similar story about Rishabhan. When, uh, you know, he was a jan, and uh, the first task mm. in furniture department he was given was to kill those bugs which were inside. <laughs> and he said, how can I do it? I'm a Jain. Ma- mother doesn't know that I'm a Jain. He wrote to Sri Mother doesn't know I'm a Jain. And Jains are not supposed to kill. And Sri says, whatever work Mother gives is meant for your progress. Do it with that attitude. <laughs> <laughs> gives a nice, sweet
1: little story uh, about how Mother hated uh, plastic flowers.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a very good story. Uh, yeah. You tell it. So, in fact, he notes notices uh, it's yeah. it's in Champa class speaks yes. that, you know, how difficult it was. In fact, impossible to know from uh, you know, like quoting the mother. So, he says there was a point of time when the mother did not like plastic flowers at all. And, you know, one could see it from a response that, you know, when somebody gave plastic flowers, you just keep it aside as if you know, she just didn't like it. And he knew it that she doesn't like. He says, but Later on, when you know, uh, very beautiful plastic flowers uh, began to come up and people put a lot of consciousness into it and when people would give it to her, she would appreciate very much. She started appreciating it. He says, then then he makes a very interesting observation. He says, supposing I had left the ashram at that point of time when I saw her uh, disliking plastic flowers and I came back much later and I saw plastic flowers around, then I would you know, begin to feel that, you know, these are things contrary to mother's will. But they are not. So she was so supple in her, because she saw the consciousness. When somebody did it with the right consciousness, with a sense of beauty, she would appreciate it. But when it was like, okay, and, <laughs> instead of a rose, let me get a plastic flower and, you know, at least something I am offering, then obviously to that she responded. So suppleness. So, I have
1: a personal uh, story about this. In Oroville, in those early days, everyone wanted to grow flowers and plants organically. No chemicals. I mean, we had seen the widespread abuse of chemicals on crops for human consumption. We had had seen uh, Monsanto and these companies go rampantly... Uh, about destroying insects, so I write a two-page, single-space, typewritten letter to Mother, mm-hmm. on how the Madhumandir Gardens I-, I could I could do organically. So Shamsunda takes the letter to Mother, and he begins to read, and he finishes the first sentence, and Mother says, "Stop." I know everything he's going to say. (laughs) Tell him he can use chemicals on the flowers. Oh, Oh, this upsets so many (laughs) horribilions. Oh, my God. (laughs) But what taught me something about suppleness? It taught me that we have to use everything consciously. Yes. If I need an intravenous, uh, if I need a uh, neosporin on a cut that's infected, Am I going to say no, let it just... Yeah, is, yeah. No, Rigidly
2: won't won't. that I'll never use medicines. Yeah, now this yeah, yeah. also yeah. is a rigidity, exactly.
0: I, I tell uh, here mm-hmm. some Jain physicians, very strict Jains, they've that this, that, you know, very fussy. So I tell them, you use antibiotics, you know. So patients, are let them die. No, no, we use antibiotics. So you have this, uh, when you have that kind of rigidity, it can never be supported fully, you know, justified. Fully. In life
2: always find loopholes, you know. Exactly. So, so this is where she brings in, so all the attitudes she says, attitude of consecration, this is one, attitude of suppleness, ascent uh, A-double-S not A-S-C A-S-C, so ascent, See, so you are um, agreeing to, you know her leading, her guidance which may come in this way or that way, not you know, oh, why has mother said this, why has mother done this uh, ma- you know, like even mother's words, how they can be used. Now, you know, this thing about mother saying uh, about vegetarian congress, these two can be misused, misquoted to justify meat eating. Right. So, you know, it is such a subtle thing. <laughs> Human consciousness can misuse anything given by the divine. And that's why divine has been very hesitant about speaking. But that causes confusion. But Shurabindo had a nice way. He ended up writing 35 volumes with Mother. No confusion. (laughs) So you, by the time you finish reading, and that's one of the things I keep telling everyone, read Mother and Shirobindo, because at the end of it, if you have really done it, you will have no confusion left, because you can see it very clearly. Now, you see, when we read this, then we, ourselves understand that they don't want to make a rigid gospel out of their own words. So, ascent. Aspiration. So the aspiration that whatever I am going to do, Mother, may that turn out to be for the best. May it create in me beauty, beauty in the world, harmony, whatever be the aspiration. Like when I have done several times such actions where I am not sure, you know, which way to go. So I used to do say this, Mother, I am offering this to you. You let truth and beauty and good emerge out of it. And I have seen at least in my personal life, I don't know, obviously it must be having impact on others who were connected with the action. In my personal life it has happened. She led me in such a way that the beauty, the truth out of it, I begin to see the truth within it and the beauty begins to emerge and it leads to harmony. Actions which could have led to disasters leading to harmony simply because you offer it with an aspiration. So aspiration, goodwill, that's very important, not with an ill will. Again she says plasticity and effort for progress. So once again I'll read these uh, things which she's saying. It gradually puts you in the right attitude towards actions. Things, an attitude of consecration, suppleness, ascent, aspiration, goodwill, plasticity, effort for progress and this is what counts much more than the small decision you take at every second. One may try to find out what is the truest thing to do. But it is not by a mental discussion or a mental problem that these things can be resolved. It is in fact by an inner attitude which creates an atmosphere of harmony, progressive harmony in which all one does will necessarily be the best thing that could be done in those particular circumstances. So there should be a atmosphere of harmony and goodwill around. And the ideal would be an attitude complete enough for the action to be spontaneous. This was the whole thing, you know, that if there is the right attitude, well, one goes with it. There is that inner um, spontaneity dictated by something other than an outer reason. But that is an ideal for which one must aspire and which one can realize after some time. Till then, to take care always to keep the true attitude, the true aspiration is as much more, impo- is much more important than to decide whether one will do gymnastic marching or not. You know, people used to ask, uh, even their letters of Bindu. see on one side, playground activity, it is so important, so important. When Dilip Kumar and some of them asked that, you know, we don't feel like going, so aren't we going to progress? I said, no, who said, who told this to you? There are quite a few people who never go to the playground. Champagalajee's instance he gives. They are in the mother's service. Mother has put them there. So, when we turn anything to a dogma, it tends to create a difficulty.
0: Strong human tendency. Yeah, strong
2: human tendency. Turn
0: everything to dogma.
2: And whether one will go to a certain class or not. So, this also, you know, see, you will go, you will not go, am I doing the right thing, wrong things, all that. Because these things have no real importance in themselves, they have only an altogether relative importance. The only important thing is just to keep the true orientation in one's aspiration and a living will for progress. Mm -hmm. And then she says something another very interesting because, okay, fine. But if I have started an action and I'm meeting with obstacles, this also question has been raised. What does it indicate? Does it mean that the Divine does not want me to do that or what? Now this is another important part of the question. So she says, when one is, uh, as a general rule, and so that the experience may have its full benefit, when one has undertaken something, one must do it with persistence, without caring for obstacles and difficulties, until an absolutely irrefutable event. Indicates that one no longer has to do it. So this is the other part. That's so important. Persist, perceiver. World forces, things are not. Uh, you know, you are not meeting success is not necessarily an indication. In fact, at another place in uh, in volume three, she says if you go by those indications, you may even be misled by the hostiles she says that. because the world forces are not under the divine control. As of now. I mean, he's the master, but they, you know, there's a whole material world. If it was under the divine control, then one would not fall sick. There would be no murders. There would be the fact that these things happen. So for instance, if one is unwell and one prays or one takes medicine and one is not recovering, so what should one do? Take it that divine wants me to say, okay, hurrah, kick the bucket. Okay. He says, no, when you've undertaken something, go through it. It's a whole journey. Mm-hmm you can't and because then you will get the full experience which will help us to grow. This happens very rarely. Usually things follow their own curve and when they reach an issue either they have come to an end or have produced the desired result. One becomes aware of the reason for doing them. But the obstacles, oppositions or encouragements should not be considered as irrefutable signs to be followed. For these things may have very different meanings according to the case. And it is not at all on the basis of these outer events that one must judge the validity of one's undertaking. Mm. It was shown recently even in the Mahavarata episode. I don't know if somebody watched it or not. On the first day of the battle and for days to follow, the Pandavas get a bad beating. So even people ask this question that you say it is a war for dharma. What is this? People are questioning that, you know, our army has been almost decimated. <laughs> he says, yes, it is still a war for dharma. Look at, you know, that external events, how they can be misleading. When one is very attentive and very sincere, one can have an indication. An inner but perceptible indication of the whole of the value of what one has undertaken or the action one is doing. Truly, for someone who has an entire goodwill, that is, who in all sincerity, with the whole conscious part of his being, wants to do the right thing in the right way, there is always an indication. If for some reason or other one launches upon a more or less fatal action, one always feels an uneasiness in the region of the solar plexus. So she says, something will tell you, don't, don't go into this line. If one has the goodwill, if one really wants an uneasiness which is not violent, which doesn't compel recognition dramatically, but is very perceptible to someone who is attentive, something like a sort of regret, like a lack of assent it may go as far as a kind of refusal to collaborate but i must stress it without violence so it doesn't you know generate guilt and you know that kind of no you must without brutal self assertion it makes no noise does not hurt it is at the most a slight uneasiness and if you disregard it if you pay no attention attach no importance to it after a little while, it will completely disappear and there will be nothing any longer. If you don't listen to it, it recedes into the background. It is not that it increases with the growing error. On the contrary, it disappears and the consciousness becomes veiled. Therefore, one cannot give this as a sure sign. For if You have disobeyed this little indication several times. Well, it will no longer come. But I tell you that if in all sincerity you are very attentive to it, then it will be a very sure and precious guide. It's a very complete, you know, she has covered from every angle and every aspect of the problem. We
1: have a little break now. Yes, I think it is. I want to ask you a question, uh, not a question so much, but from your personal experience, that Mother said India and America would lead us into the new world. And if you would talk a little bit about India and America, and because you're going to Russia, maybe say something about Russia also after the break. It's a big subject, I know. (laughs) (laughs) But whatever whatever light you have... Yeah, sure,
2: that, sure, sure. Sure. And one good question was yeah, yeah, yeah rigidity
0: sure? for the sake of rigidity is uh-huh. correct, is what it means. But if you are trying to stick to something
2: from the right attitude with the right heart, and inadvertently you're rigid, that is fine. Uh, come back to the l- it, it won't uh, lead, lead to, to yeah, I am yeah. yeah I'm I am am, to stick to that as long as I get all the and everything. But if I was lost in a the desert. Then yeah. you just I'll that give you an example. I am also a paka vegetarian. Yes. I don't uh, eat eggs also. I mean, I've grown up in an atmosphere where even onions and uh, garlic was not eaten. So I I can understand your background. But I take it like this that to start with, I don't judge people on the basis of vegetarianism. Oh, he's a vegetarian. Oh, wow, good. Oh, he's a non-veg. Oh, (laughs) condemned. (laughs) To start with that. Second thing is that I have no issues if I am sitting and eating with a non-veg person right next to me. Third, I don't feel any qualms if I have touched non-veg or you know if somebody had put it in my plate I will move it aside and eat the... Fourth, I will have no guilt if by whatever error or something I had it. it was twice and this is very interesting since you mentioned this. Mother, you know how she breaks these formations. Twice in my life, I had non-veg unwittingly. The first was when, as a young intern, 21, I went to, uh, you know, one of my very senior surgeons' house. And uh, they didn't know that I'm a vegetarian. So it's... and I didn't tell them. And they presumed that AFMC means he must be eating meat and everything. So they made... Uh, well, what it was, I'll tell you later. But, you know, we had a couple of whiskies, and, you know, when I was eating, I just couldn't... Uh, that time, you know, for a short while, I also had drinks. Oh, you're a doctor, as if without drinking and smoking. So now when I look back, it was so good that all my formations got broken. And she, gave, I went through it and she took it away from me. I mean, it's decades that I'm free from all that. And it was for a short period. But it was so helpful for me that not to judge people based on that because I came from a traditional background where smoking, drinking... Uh, You know, non-vegetarianism, all these things were an anathema. So, um, my late dad still doesn't know that I ever drank or smoked. I mean, it was for a short while. But coming back to the story, so after those couple of whiskeys I am eating and I am finding something very strange. So, um, you know, in rice there are some small, small pieces and uh, they are not tasting uh, good. They are very rubbery and I don't like it. (laughs) So... uh, I started, you know, uh, moving, them aside. moving them aside. Instinctively, even in that state, you know. <laughs> my my body is just not, I mean, my palate is not accepting it. So, then he saw, he said, "Why? what are you doing? You don't like prawn rice. And then it struck me. I am eating prawn rice. <laughs> I
1: said,
2: no, no, I am a vegetarian. So, okay, 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 I'll make chapatis for you. I said, no, no, don't worry. I can remove it, prawns, and I can eat the rice. I have no issues about it. To start with, there should have been quite a few dishes, but well, uh, whatever it is, that's a different story. <laughs> so so I had very little choice. No, 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 I'll make uh, chapati. So the lady insisted, and just so that she doesn't feel guilty, I said, okay, ma'am, you can make it. So she made chapatis. And guess what? She served it uh, to me with, with anda curry. <laughs> I don't take anda curry.
0: No.
2: Egg curry also. So, you know, what do I do? <laughs> so I took the chapati. And I would just quietly, she said, you eat it, it'll be very tasty. So I'm, you know, touching it with the (laughs) egg Joel, and I'm eating it. Now, this was one part. And the second part was in uh, second time when uh, somebody served me those fish fingers, uh, you know, they Uh, look like uh, small little snacks and I ate it and I felt like vomiting. I said, what's gone wrong with me? It's not tasting good because I thought they are potato chips or something like that. Again, it's not tasting, very strong smell, because this was fish, you know, and right. fish, unless you are used to. So I just said, excuse me, please. I went, I actually vomited, and the host did "No," you know. After that, I didn't take, and they didn't realize, because there was quite a gathering. But I was reminded of something on that day, what Sri Ramakrishna underwent, and what a sadhak is meant to undergo at a certain stage of life. In tantra, you know, yesterday we were talking about... Um, there is a sloka, Tatona Vijugupsate. He shrinks from nothing. So in Tantra, how they do 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 it? You have to, at one point of time, to make sure that you are really able to perceive divine, divine in everything. You have to eat human meat. We were talking of it yesterday. You know, there are I have gone to Ujjain where there are actual tantrics who drag dead bodies. And eat it. I am telling you a real thing, you know. And it is there practiced in Ujjain. There is, there, in fact, there is a whole Vam, Marga. the Ujjain is an amazing place where all paths are there. You have the Shaaks. You have the Shaivites. You have Vaishnavites. It was. It also has Sri Krishna Sandipni School. You have Satis. Uh, one of the parts there. You have Mahakaleshwar Jyotirling there. You have Vammarga practice there. You have every possible path. You have in Ujjain. And now, of course, uh, as an ultimate thing, Shavindu's relics have also gone. (laughs) So I was so happy. Only he can handle all these fellows. (laughs) They are so crazy. So actually, I was taken to the place where there are tantrics who will not meet you normally. There is a little bit forest there and they're hidden and they're very, I mean, very fierce. But evenings and that whole atmosphere gets so hoary. I mean, so... um, uh, So much, you know, you feel something very eerie in that atmosphere, but not eerie in a dark way. But as if, you know, like Kali, you know, present. Mm. And it can be very scary. Mm. And I said, no, no, I want to wait and see what happens. So people had to actually drag me away. Don't try all this. I said, no, I want to see what happens. Because, you know,
1: Mm.
2: now, this is a test. But these people, of course, this is not meant to, you know, eat. This a different path altogether. So which Sri Ramakrishna, when he he was a Pandit, by the way, so he has to taste meat, that too human meat. So he said, well, uh, now I can do everything, but this I can't do. So the yogi who taught him tantra said, okay, you have another option. <laughs> you will wonder at the option and wonder what choice one could make. So he said, okay, you eat human excreta. Now you have a choice between human meat and human excreta. He chose the human excreta, just test it and put it on his tongue. And he said, now I am free of that Jugopsa. You know, it's it sounds very… Uh, Extreme. But, but just to get rid of uh, you know, these um, all these uh, things which bind us, all these notions, all these… at different levels. You know, we were talking yesterday there about mental uh, concepts that bind us. Vital things bind us. Physical things bind us and these yogis had gone to any extent to get rid of this you know for instance Ramakrishna life very often he would move naked and among the 8 bondages that the vital has one of them is shame shame guilt they are bondages they don't help you to go further so shedding that now these are extreme situations but just to the extent to which you know, bringing suppleness into the system. But Sri Ramakrishna never ate meat after that. But look at how supple he had become when somebody complained about Vivekananda. You know, this fellow, I have seen him eat meat. He used to eat meat. Swami Vivekananda. Even some ancient uh, rishis used to eat meat. I mean, mm-hmm. it's documented, Agast and a uh, few others, Vishwamitra.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So when um, he was told, you know, I have seen him eat meat. Uh, you think very highly of Narendra. This is what he was doing. So Ramakrishna had a way of speaking which could be very rough. So first he used that language uh, which obviously I, I won't. And he could say, he said, what do you know? If Vivekananda, if Narendra was to go all the way to the west, sit in a hotel with wine and meat and with pretty women by his his side, he would still remain incorruptible. That is a state of consciousness. And it was prophetic. (laughs) (laughs) Vivekananda went to America after Sri Ramakrishna left. And he debated a lot whether he should go or he shouldn't go. And he didn't know what he should do. So he asked Shardama. And then she said that whatever you do, you know that Ramakrishna always had put his sanction. Again, same thing, that attitude. So then he travelled to the West. So how it breaks the as you rightly said that it's not necessary, I have never taken and I don't intend ever taking. But that jugupsa should not be there, judgment should not be there, shrinking should not be there. If it is fine if you know somebody takes meat, one takes meat.
1: Maybe somebody, some people here haven't heard the story of Rita and Mother Chicken Soup. Just yeah. could you end with that? Yeah, uh, it is
2: <laughs> Champaglalji. Uh, uh, <laughs> because at one time, uh, Mother in between used to, you know, there are two, three times when Mother had fallen very, very, very ill. And this story may be relating to that 1923-24 mm. period when uh, all possible diseases she had taken upon herself as an attack and uh, actually, at that point of time, doctor said that those days uh, felt that it's a question of touch- and go, such was the situation. And uh, she was advised to take chicken soup, and she would refuse. "No, I'm not going to take it. I don't like to, you know uh, slaughter chickens being slaughtered just to nourish my body." Then Champaglaji comes up with a brilliant idea. Mother, mother, if I was that chicken, I would love to be slaughtered,
1: <laughs> to become
2: soup for you. <laughs> then mother took it. In that state, that well, all is Brahman. In fact, it is the same sloka that we heard. It started with that sloka of the Gita. Brahmeva Brahmarpanam. It's Brahman offering to Brahman. Same with Shubhindu. Shubindo earlier used to eat meat, but later had become complete vegetarian. I mean it dropped off he says that that these things drop off at a point of time because your consciousness has become light so once when he went to a, a somebody's house those days when he was still going out in Pondicherry but so uh, the person had cooked fish, fish for him and uh, then as it was served before him someone said no no but he doesn't take uh, fish or meat so this person no but I, I heard that he takes fish so now you know there is a contradiction <laughs> so they looked at sure and as is described beautifully the lord simply smiled and took the fish and ate it <laughs> <Okay. laughs> brahma arpan brahma I mean there is a state of consciousness in which Krishna swallows the whole cosmos within himself <laughs> so that's what it means but yes if yeah, one takes a decision, makes a choice for whatever reason, either because from birth or because uh, in my case from birth, in my case also from a conscious choice because as a um, doctor I debated within myself, All everything I started challenging, all the concepts of my home that I have inherited them what is my choice, so vegetarianism was one of those things so I made a choice, maybe it was uh, subtly biased already <laughs> that no... Um, to kill for pleasure, um, to give pain to consciously, conscious pain. Of course, plants have that impulse but not conscious pain. For my pleasure, I cannot do it. And also, I had an experience with chicken um, actually being slaughtered. So, I I did not go for it. But at the same time, it's fine. Like tomorrow, especially if mother were to tell me, eat it, I'll very happily eat it. With um, Ravindraji, this happened, no? He was a staunch... um, Coming I mean from again this not Jain community but um, Ari Samajis and they would never uh, even touch anything like meat or eggs etc. And the and first job, uh, first job he was given was egg service. <laughs> so he has to touch the eggs, and initially he would find it very strange. So he so somebody asked, somebody asked him, how do you how did you do this? He said very simple. Mother's guidance, mother's instructions supersedes everything. <laughs> all the rest is unimportant. And she had a way of breaking these mental barriers. So in olden yogas, they, do, they used to do it in a crude way. As I said, eat this, taste this. It was a forced way. But how mother does it, she will put you in contact with somebody who is having all those things which you don't want or don't like to see. And she'll break those barriers. Oh, yeah, true. So
1: true.
2: true. (laughs) Okay, so we will stop here and